We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. What we've got here is failure to communicate. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. Whatever appears emerges as raw experience for those who watch it. You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. Welcome back to the Sword and Cinema Podcast. This week we're going to be taking a look at the 1940s screwball comedy His Girl Friday, directed by Howard Hawks, written by Charles Letter, and starring Rosalind Russell and Cary Grant. Here's a clip from His Girl Friday. Yes, I wish you hadn't done that, Hilly. Done what? Divorce me. Well, I, I admit I wasn't much of a husband, but you can always count on me, Hilly. I don't think she'll need you very much, Mr. Burns. I aim to do most of the protecting myself. It's an engagement ring. Yeah. I'm getting married, Walter, and I'm also getting as far away from the newspaper business as I can get. He's not the man for you, I can see that, but I sort of like him. He's got a lot of charm. Get the governor on the phone. I can't. Why not? can't locate him. He's out fishing. How many places to fish are there? When it comes by it naturally, his grandfather was a snake. Now, what's the story? All right, all right, here's your story. It's the jailbreak of your dreams. Hey, watch where you're aiming, will ya? Pretty close. You write the interview yourself. You're still a good reporter. Oh, Hilly, you know I can't write that kind of thing. It takes a woman's touch. Stay down there, all. Wait a minute. I'll be down. But just as soon as I hand him over the paper, I'll be right down. Hold a bunch of cards. Can I sympathy or understanding? Okay, you don't understand what I'm trying to do. I understand, all right. I understand. Wait, wait, just a minute. Look, honey, when you walk out that door, part of me will go right with you. But a whole new world's going to open up for you. I made fun of Bruce and Albany and all that kind of thing. You know why? I was jealous. I was sore because he could offer you the kind of life I can't give you. Okay, that was a clip from His Girl Friday, directed by Howard Hawks again. Uh, joining me this week to talk about this 1940s screwball comedy, which I love, is uh, Ricky D. Hello, Patrick. And also joining us as a special guest is writer and film critic and also a former co-host of the Sound on Sight podcast, Mariko McDonald. Hello. Well, basically, the Sword of Cinema podcast is the Sound on Sight podcast. We rebranded back in 2016, I think. Okay. All right. So it's the Sword of Cinema podcast. Sound on Sight podcast has taken a lot of different uh, shapes over the years. You guys have a storied history. Um, yeah. But now we've come to this point. So, His Girl Friday. Rick, sh shall I tell you why I chose this movie? <laughs> well, the thing is, for a podcast called Sorted Cinema, it might be seem odd that we chose a movie that's technically a screwball comedy called his girl friday released in 1940 but i think it actually fits well with the program of our show yeah absolutely it's a it's a genre movie i mean this is a it's a particular genre that i is dead i think um again i don't think you see a whole lot of screwball comedies being produced anymore comedies have transitioned into other things they've gone you know into spoofs you know with airplane and uh and then they, they later went into the stoner comedies, and you kind of have the Judd Apatow sort of stoner comedy, which is, I think, it, it is very close to sort of what we have today still, although they're, they're kind of modifying it. But I think the pure screwball comedy is kind of gone, and it's a genre that I wish would come back because I think there's a lot to love here. I, I, I've read this before, and I cannot remember who said it, but it was described as a sex comedy without the sex. And I think... That's something that's really, really interesting. It has this uh, this male-female dynamic, but it's a different sort of dynamic. Uh, it's a battle of wits dynamic. And I think His Girl Friday is uh, an exemplary uh, example of that, uh, especially with the, the sort of the – it's one of the fastest talking comedies that you're ever going to run across. And these people are really going at it, dueling uh, as hard as they can. It could be exhausting at times, but it, it is absolutely hilarious. I still love it. I think it's, I think it, it, it can give you the same sort of rush that you get from watching an action movie almost, except that it's all done with words. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. And that's, I think one of the things I love the most about the movie is the dialogue and that incredible pace that they keep up through pretty much the entire movie. Um, you know, there, there's a sort of misconception that, 
you know, older films are somehow more staid or, you know, our modern MTV uh, attention spans can't keep up with them. But this, I was having trouble keeping up with it because everything is so fast paced and it kind of infects you and you start moving that fast and uh, it makes it super exciting, like you said, almost like an action film. Yeah, and there's kind of, I mean, even to fit with sort of the Sword and Simba thing, there's kind of an amorality to this movie, too. Which oh, I absolutely. Think... Everyone is a total jerk. Right. I was, <laughs> I was really struck watching it. You're like, oh, okay, well, this guy's kind of a jerk. And, okay, well, she kind of likes it, and she's, oh, everyone is awful. <laughs> yeah, I think, that, and there, there, nobody really learns any lessons in this either. Now, that was kind of standard for a lot of Howard Hawks characters, Right. People just didn't learn lessons, and he didn't really care about that kind of stuff. But it's pretty obvious here, the way that it ends, like, especially Cary Grant's uh, character, has learned nothing. Walter Burns, um, he, he, he is just the same, just as bad as he was at the beginning of this. And, and Rosalind Russell's character, Hilda Johnson, she essentially has – she was trying to break out of, I think, her character. What That's was she? movie is about and i should give a a, a, a straight premise here um, so it's basically about a reporter named hildy johnson who has left her paper and her former husband uh to settle down and, and go into the domestic life she's engaged now to an insurance salesman from up in northern new york in albany and her goal is to basically how does she put it she, she wants to she wants to be like a real woman as she as she thinks of it anyway uh she says i want to be like a normal person so for her and her husband or her husband to be, they think that for her to be a quote unquote normal person, she should be a housewife. And we should also mention that Cary Grant also plays the editor in chief. But yes, he is the ex-husband. So he is her. He is her boss. The You mentioned that it's sort of like a dark and twisted story that's. And it is because, like, His Girl Friday plays out against a very grim plot because there is a convicted criminal, this man, who is mentally ill, who did shoot a police officer, we think, by accident. And so it's up to Hildy and Walter to try to get a scoop and publish a story that can prove that this man is possibly innocent and or at least insane so they can save his life because if not they will hang him in the morning and the thing about this movie is it all takes place within not even 24 hours it, it takes place all within like 12 hours of a day yeah and i want to say like they, they they want this scoop first of all she's lured back in by this scandal just by her instincts she wants to be part of this story because it's a massive story going on in this town right now they, they want to, to write about him and get the scoop, maybe not so much to save his life as to sell newspapers. For I sure. think that should well, be very, very. That's the thing. <laughs> I, I honestly think the saving the life is like a would honestly just be a bonus to them because it would bring more publicity to the paper. Yes. Because it, it's it just the about the scoop. Moral. And yeah. if the scoop, sorry, if the scoop is sensationalist enough. And that's like a bonus. But and anyway, you sorry. do see this, it's clear as day, when she does go and interview the man, Earl Williams. Because when she interviews Earl Williams, like he's clearly not, he's not really sane. Like there is something wrong with the man. And she basically uses the interview to try to get whatever, whatever information she can out of him. And in her head, she's just trying to like brainstorm a way to sell papers. What should a headline be? Like she's trying to manipulate the man. And so she's totally taken advantage of the situation. So you're right. Everyone's hands are dirty in this movie, except for maybe Bruce, her soon-to-be husband. He's maybe <laughs> the only innocent character in the movie. And how many times does he end up in jail? That's At least three. three. At least three I that I counted. Yeah, yeah. At least three. Because he's easy. <laughs> Stealing a watch was the first one. Oh, God. I know. Oh, and he was mashing different. was the second one. I made yes, such a note of that because I, I love the fact that they got that word in there. I was like, oh, my goodness. I'm going to have fun and, explaining this on the podcast. And counterfeit, pa passing off counterfeit bills was the third one. Yeah. Now, he's completely yeah. innocent of all these charges, we should state. He's the, he's oblivious. He's naive. And he's, he's in, an innocent character. And he actually is probably the only nice one because he does seem to want for Hildy what she wants. He is not somebody and, – and even – he, he isn't saying you need to become a housewife. There is a point during uh, the restaurant scene where he's saying, well, if you really want to write, maybe you should continue writing if it really means that much to you. He really is a, a truly nice person. But none of these 
people belong with anybody nice. That is what really sets the film apart from romantic comedies or screwball comedies of the 1940s, at least the movies I've seen, because the ethics of Hildy Walter and the entire newsroom, like all of their <laughs> colleagues, it's it's sketchy. It's sketchy to say the least. So they're like these hard-boiled professional journalists. They will do whatever it takes to get a story, to get a scoop, including committing a few crimes. And as you said, like he actually frames Bruce, the soon-to-be husband, puts him in jail twice. It's twice, right? Three, Three times. times. Three times. <laughs> but he has no problem hiding a convicted murderer in the desk. He has no problem lying to the cops. He has no problem replacing the headlines in the newspapers and moving the story about, about um, Hitler to page seven. But... Keeping With the story the about yeah, keeping the story about the monkeys on page one because it's of human interest. <laughs> I I wrote that one down too. That was amazing. <laughs> she is just like him. Yeah, like she will do whatever it takes, and you can you can like he knows he knows that she has this passion for being a journalist. Like he knows it's not going to work out. Like even if she were to marry this guy Bruce, it's not going to work out because you can tell she wants to come back. It's not very hard for him to try to, like, win her back, or at least win her back as, like, uh, an employee. But despite the fact that they show the sort of, um, like, it portrays, like, sort of, like, a negative light on, on journalists. Like, it does show the dark side of being an investigative journalist, because you do sort of, like, have to do terrible things in order to get, like, a scoop or, you know, whatever. But at the same time, at the end of the movie, right, they do save his life and... They end up putting a corrupt politician behind the bars. So it's this weird thing where the movie does show the negative side of investigative journalism, but at the same time, it shows the pros. And it shows how because of these two people, that even if they weren't intentionally trying to save the man's life or trying to put the corrupt politician behind bars, at the end of the movie, they actually succeed. And that is exactly what happens. They're not necessarily doing these things for the right reasons, because even earlier on, when Cary Grant is talking to his assistant editor-in-chief, I'm assuming, um, I can't remember his name, but he he's talking about how they're going to write a negative story against the current governor, I, I believe it is, um, if something doesn't go their way. And the guy says, well, wait a second, but we support him. You know, we'd be helping out the other candidate. And Cary Grant doesn't care. He doesn't care which candidate he helps out. He just wants whoever is going to support the paper. It has nothing to do with any sort of actual politics or philosophy on anything. It's just about the paper. That's what he cares about. And uh, <laughs> nothing else, anything good or bad that happens along the way is just, you know, a consequence of him caring about the paper. Now, I should say this was based on one of the things I want to get into is this is based on, on a play, a 1928 play uh, by Ben Hecht, I believe, and Charles, what is uh, his other, the other writer's name? Um, Charles MacArthur. So there, His Girl Friday contains a major change to that play in that the character played by Hildy was originally written as a man. And it was Howard Hawks who decided, uh, uh, reportedly, now there's a, all sorts of sources who aren't so sure about this, um, I, I can't confirm because I did watch a lot of interviews with Howard Hawks and he does confirm in the interview that basically he was at home with his, I think, wife or girlfriend at the time and a bunch of friends and they were reading the script and he had her reading one of the lines and he just realized that this sounds way better if the character is actually a lady. And so they did swap the gender and in doing so, they actually added 25 minutes of backstory to the script. But then Howard Hawks was given like the final draft and he decided to rewrite half of the screenplay. More than 50% of the script is really the work of Howard Hawks. I like, I, I like the front page and Billy Wilder is one of my favorite film directors of all time, but I think that His Girl Friday is way better. I think it's far more interesting because she, it's not just because she's a lady. I mean, it's just it's the way she's written in the way she's like the ex-wife of walter uh the fact that she's going to get a divorce and she has this this choice to make like does she want to become a housewife does she want to like pursue her career and after this movie came out there was like tons of movies that focused and centered on a plot in which the leading lady has to decide between love and marriage and or career and being a professional well, I mean, a lot of that was just reflecting what was happening in in society at the time. Uh, you know, World War II is is gearing up. Um, 
less so in the U.S. at this time, but, you know, it was certainly on everyone's minds when this film was being made. Um, Men are going off to war. Women have to kind of pick up the slack. And so the idea of, you know, a career for a woman outside of the home, um, you know, it it was something very new and it was something um, that really touched uh, on a lot of things that were happening in the zeitgeist at the time. Yeah, and the way how Hawks treats it is uh, as if it was nothing. It's a non-issue for him. He doesn't focus so much on, you know, this woman having – She. it's more about the character wanting to choose, not, oh, look at this, we have a woman in the workplace. Because the way she walks around, the way everybody talks to her, she's just one of the guys. She calls herself a newspaper man <laughs> constantly. Um, and – Sometimes I, it feels like that character doesn't want to be treated by it like just one of the guys, or at least she thinks she doesn't want to be, uh, you know, and by the end, maybe she doesn't care as much. But it, it definitely, the switch, I think, made for much, much better dynamic. You talk about that backstory. The, having the original was just, it was it was one of the reporters was going to settle down, get get married, have a kid. And his editor was trying to convince him not to do that. It's a far more interesting dynamic to have a divorced couple who have worked with each other and are both lured back in by this. And one of them is trying to break free of that uh, that lifestyle and start a new one and just can't can't quite do it or doesn't want to do it necessarily. Mrs. Baldwin, mother, don't you mother me playing cat and mouse with my poor boy, keeping him locked up, I making us miss that. two trains, and you supposed to be married tomorrow. I'll be with you in five minutes. You Ruth, don't I... have to go with me at all. Just give me Bruce's money. You can stay here forever, as far as I'm concerned. Well, you mother, are that please. murderer you caught. What's that? What did you say? What Which murder? one of these men is it? They all look like murderers to me. Wait a minute, Hildy. What murder did you catch? I was talking about. What I never said mean? any such thing. I'm quoting my son, and he has never lied to Somebody's me. Somebody's lying. ridiculous in the first place. No, I never said anything like that. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. I said I was uh, trying to find the murderer. Come on, murderer. Yeah. Yeah. got it all balled up. Oh, Can't yeah, you see yeah. that? Who are you holding well, out? Nobody. Now let me go, William. I don't know where he is. Stop it! Stop it! The, uh, the original play and the front page... It sort of plays out from my memory like a bromance, but at the time, like, the word bromance wasn't even coined yet, like that term. But I remember it being, like, sort of like this love story between the editor and his ace news reporter. In the end, I don't think, like, Hildy is necessarily choosing Walter over Bruce. She's choosing her career over getting married. Therefore, she's choosing to be a journalist, a news reporter over Bruce. Yeah, the romance in this is very, very light. There really isn't any romance. It's hard to say that there's a single romantic thing that actually happens in this movie. Uh, You could always attribute anything that Cary Grant does, for instance, to, again, him wanting to keep his best reporter on the paper, doing what's best for him and the paper, uh, as opposed to any sort of romantic gesture where, oh, he's trying to win his wife back. Uh, that, I, I just don't really see it. It kind of is that way. He plays it really well. He straddles a line where you could reasonably question his motives on any decision he makes as to what he's actually doing this for. Because by the end, when they are, when they do get back together, uh, you know, and they're going to go, they're going to get married again and they're going to go on a honeymoon. But guess what? A story crops up. And then as he walks out the door, he's, he, he, he doesn't hold the door for her. He doesn't carry her luggage. He just, he just <laughs> walks ahead of her right out the door and she's left following behind in tow there's not really any romance now not all screwball screwball comedies were that way i mean obviously there were there was a little more romantic interplay in in many others however they do usually revolve around that sort of bickering uh, and and any real romance comes right up at the very end right you know at the end like you mentioned that he walks out he lets her carry her own suitcase like he's not being a gentleman etc etc like that mirrors the opening scene because in the opening scene she actually criticizes him for not doing so what what I really love about the movie is under so many things I love about this movie, but it's the way she's portrayed because in this movie, like he might be the editor in chief, he may be the boss. Like I'm talking about Walter, Cary Grant's character, but she is treated like an equal, not just by her colleagues, but even by the film itself, like the director to screenplay. And I love how her coworkers just look up to her. Like there's this brilliant shot 
where she walks into the room and she's talking to her colleagues and she's about to go get married and live in Albany and whatever. And they can't believe that she is going to leave the job because she's so good at the job. Like she's the best of the best. Like there's no one better than her. And so they actually sit down or playing poker or drinking or talking about how great of a journalist she is. She walks back in, she's talking to him. And the way Howard Hawks frames a shot, he has her at the top center of the frame. And they are in the foreground, but we only see them from behind. So the camera's showing their backs and they're all looking up at her like in awe. And it's as if she's framed, as if she's on a stage with a spotlight on her. Right behind her is the entranceway, like the doorway. And they're all looking at her while she talks. And I just love the way he frames her throughout the whole entire film. He doesn't do this with her and Walter because her and Walter are sort of equals, but there's never any sort of like framing or, 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 or shot compositions in which it implies that Walter is above her in any way. They are equal. And she's just as good, if not better, than Walter at doing her job. Well, I'm sure she's better than Walter at doing her job. I, I mean, his job <laughs> is essentially, her job is, or his job is essentially to, to, to run things, right? Like he has everybody do these things for her. He, his job is to use her to the best of her abilities um but she's clearly the number one person on that staff and one of those journalists was taking odds right on how long the marriage would even last you know how long it would take for her to get away from this kind of stuff uh, it, it's interesting the way hawks has to find visual or, or creates his visuals because this is a movie where there are really only what maybe four or five locations where they actually do filming. You can tell this is based on a play because scenes go on very, very long. I, I think the first scene is like 12 or 15 minutes. Um, it's just, a, it's a lot of dialogue and a lot of sitting in the same room. So he had to find ways to stage things and to shoot things in order to make it visually interesting as a movie. And I think he does that very well. Uh, getting back to uh, Ricky's point about um Rosalind Russell's character and uh, the way that she's viewed by the other newsmen. Um, I I really appreciated how sort of there were hints to the idea that it it was because she was a woman with a feminine touch, and you know that's one of the things that Walter feeds to her when he's trying to get her to interview the convict um, and whatnot. But I think we do see that 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 is actually important in the way that uh, the other journalists are treating Molly Malloy, um, the witness for the the murderer. You know, I I think it would be easy for someone to to make more of that to to make it into like a masculine, feminine issue. But you know, obviously the movie never really does it. Her superiority is based 100% on her craft. But I I did appreciate that there was like this subtle nod that you know the things that make her think that she should be off in Albany, uh, raising a family maybe are what help her as a journalist. Yeah, and he does reference her writing every now and again. Uh, like, you know, she uses words better than he does. And, you know, the other guys are definitely, they're considered kind of gritty. They grind things out, but they're kind of goons in a way, too, the other journalists. I mean, they yeah. they run around like Keystone cops, you know, back and forth, uh, chasing whatever stupid lead that they might have. Although I will say this, there is that one scene where Rosalind Russell chases down that guy right outside the prison and oh, tackles him. That, was that great. comes that comes out of nowhere, showing that she also has that same tenacity. So it isn't necessarily like just her wiles that she uses or you know her her news newspaper intuition, but she also has the same tenacity as those people uh, in just doing the physical legwork. Literally, the legwork and tackle. <laughs> I, I couldn't get over that sequence that you're referring to. It's the prison break sequence because she does run out in the middle of the street and there's dozens and dozens of uh, patrol cars passing by. And like for the time, like filmed in 1939, she's pretty much doing her own stunt. And I'm like, I'm watching the, the movie. I watched it three times this week, by the way. And I'm watching, I'm like, holy shit. I'm like, she actually is crossing this, the road. It's, it seems sort of dangerous. And then she, she, she pursues the man on foot. There's like a foot chase. And for the time, again, 1939, when it was filmed, the movie was released in 1940. I think it's amazing. Like, I love, I love Howard Hawks. I think he's like the most underrated great american filmmaker i think it was leonard malton who said he's the greatest american filmmaker who isn't a household name uh i i do not understand why so many people haven't watched his movies uh the guy's made 
over 40 movies. He made a movie a year. He made a movie in every genre from sci-fi to horror to thriller to film noir to western to, you know, romantic comedy, screwball comedy. You name it. He could do it all. And again, like, you know, Patrick, you, you mentioned that there's only like four or five sets in in, in this movie because it's based on a stage play but yet he finds the most clever ways the most interesting ways the most creative ways to frame every shot and 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 you know put his camera in the right place so everything comes to life and and that is one specific sequence that 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 stands out like when they hear the gunshots for the first time then you know you see like all the chaos unfolding down on the streets below and then she runs out like i was just like i couldn't i still like it might sound silly but i think that is an amazing scene because again she's running through traffic like it's insane full-on running by the way like just full-on booking it and <laughs> does a yeah, football I, tackle on this guy <laughs> i totally agree i mean <laughs> the physicality of it i was i was really really struck it's a it's a great scene yeah, and it stands in contrast to the rest of the movie, which is all talk for the most part. It is just verbal repartee. It's, it, it, you know, but this was an actual physical attack, which was rare for this movie. And that's why it's kind of shocking. Uh, I think there are two sort of shocking scenes in this, just shocking in the sense that they sort of they go against the tone of the rest of the movie. That's one of them because it's so physical. And then the other one is the prison scene, which is extremely quiet when she interviews Earl Williams extremely quiet and um it just sort of goes against the flutter of activity that is in every single other scene where people are just pushing against each other constantly and talking over one another here is a very slow deliberate conversation with deliberate movements like her handing him a cigarette and him handing it back because he doesn't smoke it turns out um yeah i i think that scene also and the way it's lit it's very uh Orson Welles lit, you know, <laughs> it's got <laughs> shafts of light coming in and it, it, it is completely staged, but it just stands in kind of a stark contrast. And, it, and it, I think it, it amounts to kind of a break also showing that these people are different kinds of people who don't necessarily understand each other. He's blue collar, you know, schmo. And while she's, I would say blue collar, she is from a completely different kind of, you know, I think the newspaper writers were a completely different kind of blue collar. So it, uh, that scene also really stands out for me. I actually highlighted that scene in my article. Uh, first of all, it happens 30, at the 32-minute mark of the film. And like you said, it really sort of stands out. And I thought it was a surprising decision to stop the film dead in its tracks. Include this scene because this scene isn't in the original screenplay. Like Howard Hawks wrote it specifically for the movie. And I love, like you said, like when you, when you talk about the cinematography, the lighting, it does look like a film noir. And he has that... Over the top, slanted wide angle camera shot. It's like a bird's eye view of the prison cell. She walks in, it dissolves into their conversation. But when I was watching the scene, that is when I realized that this movie doesn't really have a soundtrack. And the soundtrack really is the dialogue. Like it's the dialogue, the rapid fire, witty banter between the people, like the conversation that provides the rhythm of the movie. Because in any film, if you had a scene like that, they would have some sort of soundtrack playing into it at least to lead up into her walking into the prison it would be like this really depressing composition of music right but that is when i realized hey there's no soundtrack to this movie um so i thought that was really cool and that scene really stood out for me and also that is the scene when i realized that the people in the movie who talk the loudest and the fastest they are the ones that are considered intelligent and mm -hmm. the slower you talk and the quieter Ooh. you talk then you're considered least intelligent. So in other words, like the two leads, Cary Grant and um, and Russell, 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 their characters talk really fast. And there's other characters in the movie to talk really fast too. But every single character to talk slow, you, that just sort of like makes it clear that they can outsmart those people at any time. So I, I just thought that was really interesting. And that sort of like stood out because of this scene. And maybe it's because the movie slows down. You actually have uh, sort of like a chance to sit back, relax, <laughs> and actually soak it all in. Because this movie, it moves fast. Hello, Earl. Hello. My name's Johnson. Mind if I talk to you for a few minutes? No, I haven't anything else to do. That's right. So you see, I couldn't plead insanity because I'm just as sane as anybody else. You didn't mean to kill that policeman, huh? Well, of course not. It's against everything I've ever stood for. They know it was an accident. I'm not guilty. It's, it's just the world. 
see what you mean. Sorry about the lipstick, girl. Now, look, after you lost your job, uh, what did you do? I tried to find another job. I mean, how did you spend your time? Oh, I used to sit around the park any place. Oh, uh, I don't smoke. When you were in the park, uh, did you hear any of those speeches? You mean those fellows that talk too much? Yeah. Well, I didn't pay any attention. You see, did I you was thinking... Did you hear anything they said? Yes. Well, uh, is there anything you remember? Anything in particular? Well, there was one fellow, he... What did uh, he talk about? He talked about production for use. Production for use? Yes, he said everything should be made use of. Makes quite a bit of sense, doesn't it? Yes, I liked him. He was a good look, speaker. Girl, uh, when you found yourself with that gun in your hand and that policeman coming at you, what did you think about? I don't know exactly. You just thought of something? Well... Could it have been uh, production for use? I don't know. I... What's a gun for, Earl? A gun? Hmm. Why, to shoot, of course. Oh, and maybe that's why you used it. Maybe. Seems reasonable. Yes, yes, it is. But you see, I've never had a gun in my hand before. And that's what a gun's for, isn't it? Maybe, maybe that's why. Sure it is. Yes, that's what I thought of. Production for use. Why, it's simple, isn't it? Very simple. There's nothing crazy about that, is there? No, nope, nothing at all. You'll write about that in your paper, won't you? Yeah, and Molly, I think, falls into that as well, who is the friend of Earl Williams. I don't know exactly how to, to quanti- uh, qualify their relationship. It's obviously treated uh, poorly by by the journalists who make it into some something a little more salacious than it really is. Um, but she talks also a little bit slower, and they, they clearly don't – nobody respects any of the slow-talking people in this movie, no matter how nice they might be. <laughs> they're not respected at all uh, and Molly's probably gets the worst of all of that obviously she's probably treated the worst um, it, it's an interesting contrast and yeah you're right the Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell are definitely the fastest talking and I, I think that, that Howard Hawks said that he applied verbal tags in the script so that people would kind of know where they were where where they could where, where they need to pick up from because everybody was going to be talking over each other and there were going to be ad-libs so they had to have at least clues as to how the scene would continue. It's very tough because people really, really talk over each other a lot in this film. And you're not necessarily going to understand every single word of dialogue, but you, you'll you get all the important stuff, obviously. But there, there are little one-liners that I had missed. You, know, you, you pick up something new every time watching this movie. And certain things like I had... Uh, Cary Grant had some ad-libs that I think are absolutely hilarious when you consider the context that they're in. When he's describing the character of Bruce, uh, somebody asks what he looks like, and he says he looks like that actor Ralph Bellamy, who is the actor playing Bruce. Oh, which my is, goodness. It's a fourth wall-breaking <laughs> thing that's kind of hilarious. <laughs> like, and he also references Archie Leach. He references, like, you remember what I did that Archie Leach character, and he makes the, the motion cutting his car, he cut his throat or whatever. Archie Leach is Cary Grant's name. His real name, or it was his birth name, I guess. So those ad-libs were just, I, I didn't always catch those the, the first time through because people, Cary Grant sometimes saying them in a lower voice sort of in the background while somebody else is saying something more important. But uh, yeah, there's a lot, a lot of funny stuff going on in this. The screenplay is 191 pages long, which is long because for anyone who doesn't know, usually one page of a screenplay translates to one minute of a movie. So despite the fact that the screenplay is, again, 191 pages long, the movie itself is only 92 minutes long because of the overlapping dialogue. And to the point I was about to make about the dialogue and what you were saying about music, actually, was the thought that I had watching the film um, this last time was uh, the dialogue is treated like choreography. It's treated like a dance. The, the the way that people flow in and out of the conversation and the the timing and like you said those tags so that you know where to come in, uh, absolutely reminded me of you know like a big dance number or something. Well, it's called Hawksian crosstalk. That is what it was later dubbed, and that is why filmmakers like Robert Altman, Quentin Tarantino, they love. Howard Hawks, like you see it in their movies, like they try to emulate what he did. But I mean, Howard Hawks is a speed freak. Like he was a race car driver. He was a pilot. He just loved things to move fast. Like if he was alive today, he he would probably be making movies like Fast and the Furious, like no offense. But um, yeah, so I I just like I I listened to the interview and he was talking about how they would use like 
35 microphones, right? Because back then, like, sound mixing was different because technology wasn't as advanced. And so he, he would have the sound mixers and, like, two two guys holding two boom mics. And they would actually have to switch on cue, which is really difficult because you have to keep up with the, the, the actors who are, you know, talking a mile a minute. But also, he's encouraging the actors to improvise. So with the improv, like you never know what you're gonna get, and so these poor, <laughs> these poor sound mixers, and they have to like switch between like you know 35 microphones, and they're just like they're, it's all cued, and it's like Patrick said, like in the actual screenplay, he would put like he would highlight the specific words or sentences that you, this is when you overlap, like we don't care about this piece of dialogue, this is when you come in and talk over so and so, and then the poor cinematographer has to try to keep up with this. This, this chaos, which means he has to worry about the lighting. Is there enough light going into the camera? Like, you know what I mean? And and he's encouraging them to improv. <laughs> so it's like, that is why it took, so like, I think the um, the dinner sequence or the lunch sequence, whatever, when they go to the restaurant, it took them four days to film it. Four days. You watch that sequence and it seems like it's, it, obviously it's staged very well. It seems like it's very purposeful in the way that it's staged. And it seems fairly simple to shoot. But it is the way that they're talking over each other uh, that 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 makes that difficult. And on top of that, Rosalind Russell brought in her own writer to sort of punch up her her dialogue because she didn't feel that she had very many good lines. And I think that was a smart move because that also she ends up having she ends up being a fantastic uh, counterpoint to Cary Grant, who is extremely sarcastic. And had they not had her be as sarcastic and witty, uh, it would have also lessened sort of the the interplay between those two do we know if that's true because like when i was reading the article like i've heard that story so many times but i couldn't find any specific source that actually cited as being true like this is actually true she paid someone i'm pretty sure cary grant verified that because he he never knew he he never knew what she was gonna say he said when he came on the set that day he didn't know what they had written the night before so he was kind of ready for anything uh and it's clear that he was in in a good mood for making this movie because of all his ad libs i mean they're just his 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 buffoonish reactions to things his mugging for the camera is fantastic oh he's amazing and he's in so many howard hawks movies he's i love cary grant um, you know, just like even before I saw the movie, like you didn't have to tell me Howard Hawks directed. If it has Cary Grant's name on it, I'm going to watch it. Not to say all his movies are great, but he's great. Yeah, and it's funny that Rosalind Russell ends up being absolutely fantastic, and yet she was like the eighth choice for this movie. They went through several other actresses before they finally settled for Rosalind Russell, who was loaned out, I believe, on her contract and didn't really have a choice in the matter whatsoever. It's interesting how things work out like that. Howard Hawks is known for discovering some like, you know, incredible talent throughout his whole entire career, but it helped because he never signed a contract with a studio. So he made like 30 plus movies and he was never under contract, which gave him a lot of creative freedom. And I think that's why when you watch a lot of his movies, like a lot of people consider him an auteur, like a true auteur, because when you watch a Howard Hawks movie, like you can see like the trademarks on screen, like it could be like a, a camera shot or, you know, like, I mean, Jean-Luc Godard famously wrote about his girl Friday because of the shot reverse shot. And, and Howard Hawks, like when I was watching the interview, he's like, uh, yeah, you know, like the French, they really love me. And uh, I don't get it. He's like, I never analyze movies. He's like, I just, I just go on set and I do what I think looks good. And he just, he works on instinct. He doesn't really sit there and overanalyze the shot. Like he doesn't, he doesn't try to think of like how the shot's got and uh, uh, heights in whatever theme the movie's trying to address, be it uh, you know feminism or investigative journalism, whatever. He just does whatever he thinks works. He likes framing people in doorways. If you think about the, this movie, The Thing from Another Planet, how often was that alien framed, silhouetted in a doorway, with a, a lit doorway? And uh, Rio Bravo has a lot of people standing in doors. That, to me, that's how you spot a Howard Hawks movie. Somebody standing in a doorway, in a door frame. Bingo. Lit from behind, yeah. Yep. <laughs> All right, I think with that, we should take a quick break. We're going to hear another clip from His Girl Friday, and we'll be back with our five questions. Here's a clip. This isn't just a newspaper story, Hildy. It's a career. 
And you stand there belly aching about whether you catch an 8 o'clock train or a 9 o'clock train. Oh, I never figured oh, it that way. Oh, you're still a doll-faced hick, that's why. Gee, he'd be the white-haired boy. Sure, they'll be naming streets after you. Hildy Johnson Street. There'll be statues of you in the park. The movies will be after you. The radio. By tomorrow morning, I'll bet you there's a Hildy Johnson cigar. I can see the billboards now. I said, light up with Hildy Johnson. Oh, wow, will you stop that acting? Huh? we got a lot to do. Oh, you're talking. We can't leave Williams in here. We'll take him over to my private office. Which is our phone? That one on the end. Oh. How are you going to take him? You'll see him. Not if he's inside the desk. We'll carry the desk over. Hello. You can't move that desk. It's crawling with cops outside. All right, we're lowered out the window with pulleys. Now, quit stalling. Get the typewriter over here. Come on, stop pounding out the leaves. How much of this stuff do you want? All the words you got. Hello, give me Duffy. Hey. What? Can I call the mayor a bird of prey? Call him anything you like. How about the time he had his house painted by the fire department? Give him the word. Uh-huh. Hello, Duffy, get set. We got the biggest story in years. Earl Williams captured by the Morning Post exclusive. Yeah. And I want you to tear out the whole front page. That's what I said, the whole front page out. But never mind the European war. We got something a whole lot bigger than that. Hilton Johnson's right in the lead. I'll give it to you as soon as she's finished. And listen, Duffy, get hold of Butch O'Connor. Time to come up here right away with half a dozen of his wrestlers. Yeah, Butch O'Connor. What? Well, I got a desk I want to move. Never mind what. Hildy. What the deuce do you want? Oh, hello, Bruce. Hildy. No, no, never mind the Chinese earthquake, for heaven's sake. Hildy, I just want to ask you one question. Bruce, how did you get out of jail? Well, not through any help now, of yours. Now, listen, buddy, oh. you can't I'm come in here. We're busy. I had to wire Albany for $100 so I could get out on bail. No. Look, I don't care if there's a million dead. I don't know what they're going to think up there in Albany. They had yeah. to send the money to the police station. Oh, for Pete's sake, Hildy, come on. We're waiting for that story. Uh, we'll explain everything to them, Bruce. Well, where's Mother? She said she was coming up here. Uh, she left. No, I can't hear you, Duffy. Where'd she go? Out someplace. Don't know. Junk the Polish corridor. Hildy, tell me where my mother was going. Uh, she couldn't say. Oh, never oh, mind that. Understand. This is more Did important. Did she get the money from you? Uh, no, no. She left what? in a hurry. I'll take that money, Hill. All right, Bruce, right there in my I purse. I decided I can handle things around here, and I'll take that certified well, check, too. I'll give it to you, Bruce. Here. Here's yeah, the tickets, and you'll find your money uh, in the wallet. My wallet? Yeah. This is my wallet. Uh, Say, uh, there's something funny going on. Here, what are you doing? Just wanted to look at it. Hildy, I'm taking the 9 o'clock train. Sure, oh, sure. Did sure. you hear what I said? I said, I'm uh, taking the, the 9, nine o'clock train. Tra- oh, Bruce, I put it in here. All right, that was another clip from His Girl Friday. Uh, guys, we're at the point now where we're going to ask a few questions about this movie. And the first one we always like to start off with is, what is your favorite scene? So, Marika, what is your favorite scene from His Girl Friday? I really loved uh, any time Rosalind Russell was uh, telling off Cary Grant. <laughs> which, uh, which is a lot of the movie, luckily. Yeah, that, that's true. But there was a... a... I did write it down where she tells Walter off. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there was one um, at the beginning when she, uh, you know, when she was basically making her split, she tells him off for a little bit. Then there was one when they were in the re- the journalist's room. Yeah, that was the one I, I was referencing. Okay. Yeah, that that's a good one. Because she really, she lets him have it over the phone once, too. Remember when she comes down to threaten to bash his head in or something? Like yeah, that? yeah. But, yeah, the one in the newsroom because... You know, she he's been manipulating her so masterfully <laughs> through most of this film. And like, OK, yeah, partly it's because he has a lock on what she really wants and, you know, is able to use that. Um, but, yeah, just her being able to turn and finally be the the faster, the louder one um, was just really, really satisfying. Yeah, I like when I mean it's surprising to, sometimes how how uh, angry they can she can get in this movie, <laughs> which is great. That just makes her character all the better. Um, Rick, what was your favorite scene? Ooh, this is tough. So it's not the best scene. I think the best scene is a scene I spoke about earlier, right before the prison break, when she's about to leave and she's speaking to the guys in a way the whole scene is framed and the conversation's happening. But I think my favorite scene is the second last scene, I guess, like towards the end when they kidnap Bruce's mom and then everyone walks into the room and then, (laughs) and then um, the poor guy's like hidden in the desk. And there's this like conversation going back and forth between 12 people crammed into one room. And there's these brilliant, brilliant edits. Like the editing in this movie is amazing. So like, you know, like we're talking about like fast paced dialogue, rapid fire editing, and there's chaos, just cha- it's pure chaos. And then, you know, Carrie, uh, what's happening is Carrie Grant's Walter is trying to get them to carry 
the desk outside because they're like, oh, we're going to take all of your all of your uh, supplies and equipment and furniture and whatever. And he's like, go for it. He's like, I would like to see you take the desk because the man's in the desk and he can't carry it because it's too heavy. <laughs> and like, It's not just because it's the funniest scene in the movie. It's also because it, it, it showcases the brilliance of the editing. Like, like that specific scene is a masterclass of editing. I mean, the whole entire movie is, but that to me is, you know what? Actually, that's the best scene. It's not only my favorite. It's not only the funniest, but I think it's the best. It's a really good climax because it basically takes all that chaos and then just amps it right back up. And the way they all are at each other, Cary Grant's kind of bluster. He attacks every single person in that room, you know, and I dare you to remove all my equipment. And when, when the when Bruce's mom comes in and accuses him of kidnapping her, he accuses her of being drunk. Um, or <laughs> it's just, He goes after everybody shamelessly. He, he has no shame whatsoever. I think um, it's pretty romantic that he actually kidnaps Bruce's mom. Like, <laughs> well, he has he has his thug do it too, and even that guy he's lying to Louis. He's telling him like, "You and I are best pals," and Louis says, "I like you a lot too, boss." <laughs> you know, it's, it's a complete lie. You know that Cary Grant's totally lying to him, just like he lied to the guy that he said he would. You know, the the writer he said he would hire, the poet, uh, everybody. He lies to everybody, and only Rosalind Russell's character, only Hildy, knows that he's lying to all these people, and you see that when when he's talking to the 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 writer that he's who's who owns the desk and he's trying to get him out of the room and he's basically giving him a job just to get him out of the room and then they'll fire him a week later and only you can see hildy's smiles as she's typing up her story she knows exactly what he's doing but she's the only one that knows that he lies pretty much to everybody i like how earl's just fed up he's like go ahead and shoot (laughs) 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 he's had enough of this he's exhausted by all this conversation Uh, for me, my favorite scene is the restaurant scene. I think it's kind of just a perfect encapsulation of this movie. And it's got the perfect amount of people, the, the sort of the three of them going off. It's got one slow person, two fast people. And these two fast people are trying to sort of hide things from the slow person, all while trying to sound perfectly normal and be nice to each other. So they're at odds. You've got Walter and Hildy are at odds at this point. Um, he doesn't like that she's leaving. She doesn't like that he's. she already knows he's trying to manipulate things. And um, so there's a little bit of a mini battle there. And then the guy sitting next to them is completely oblivious. who thinks that he's just partaking in a, in a nice, pleasant lunch conversation. And meanwhile, you've got, you know, Walter plotting things with the with the waiter. And I, I love that restaurant scene. It was written specifically for this movie. And I think it's one of the one of the best scenes in the movie, just one of the most entertaining scenes in the movie. It's got some great, great dialogue. Yeah, that was a very close number, too, for me, as far as favorite scenes, especially because it's all kicked off by the fiance almost sitting on Cary Grant. And that to me, that kind of like <laughs> kicks off like you exact, you know exactly where everyone stands in the relationship and in the relationship with Rosalind Russell. As soon as that happens, you're like, oh, OK. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that Cary Grant. Yeah, I mean, how you mentioned he takes the middle seat so that he is sitting next to to, to Hildy and thus putting and Bruce he does it so Bellamy. naturally and so casually that the Bruce Bellamy character doesn't even register what's happening. No, no, compl- not at all. And in fact, he thinks that he, he ends up walking away from that scene thinking that Walter is a really, really great guy. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So with that said, Mariko, if there was one thing you could change about this movie, what would it be? I'm going to be totally honest. I, I nothing. Not a thing. Not a thing. The script is brilliant. The editing is brilliant. The acting is brilliant. I mean, I'm going to challenge the acting thing on just one character. It's only one. And can you guess who who I think has done the poor job in this movie? The only thing, the only sour note, I think, in this movie, and it's a very minor one. I'll grant you that. Very minor. Uh, No, it's the messenger guy. The, The guy who brings in the letter from the governor. And, oh, he's so out of place in this. And I know he's supposed to be a rube, but he's the worst sort. He's a rube who mugs for the camera, and I can't stand him. That's the only actor in this that I would I would have replaced. Do you know who I'm talking about? Yeah, I know, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> he just doesn't work well with the other characters, I feel. They could have had a different actor read those exact same lines, but that 
that particular actor to me takes me out of those scenes. I'm glad he's just a minor part. <laughs> That's all. Because I just, I, he doesn't work with, when he's talking to the governor and the sheriff, those two guys are, you know, they work fine together as sort of sleazy, corrupt politicians or whatever. This guy comes in and he's, he just, it's almost like he belongs in a different kind of movie. Like he, like he's in a, john ford western and he just needs to be sitting on a porch smoking a pipe and rambling like that it doesn't seem to fit this movie that's all i don't he kind of reminded me of the the una character in a, of what's her face and like uh bride of frankenstein where it's just it it's like just the wrong side of vaudeville for what mm-hmm. everything else that's happening <laughs> yes he's he's not it with the, he doesn't fit the tone of everybody else. Everybody else seems to be on the right same page except for him to me. I mean, I enjoyed it because I, I do enjoy that kind of really, really hokey humor. But I, I totally understand why you think it doesn't fit with the rest of the, the tone of the film because it, it really doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm fine with characters like that in other movies, but not in this one. Um, Rick, what would you change? What would I change? Cary Grant? I'm joking. <laughs> um, so I, I actually thought about this, and I was going to answer like Mariko. I would not change a single thing, except on my third viewing, I saw something. Now that I see it, I can't unsee it, and it happens during my favorite scene. So, Or not my favorite scene, like one of the best scenes, and it's a scene I spoke about earlier when she is speaking with her colleagues, and it's right before the prison break sequence. So you hear the gunshots and all of the men in the newsroom, they all run to the window and they're looking down and there's like cops firing like left and right. And and they are reacting to this prison break that's happening right outside. And she is in the frame because it's like a static shot, right? Like he does cut between different shots, but the master shot is a static shot that shows the entire room. And she's standing in the background. But the problem is she's in the frame. And she, as an actress, isn't reacting to what's happening outside, which is like this big thing. It's a big event because there's a prison break. And I don't know who to fault. I don't know if it's Howard Hawks, if it's a cinematographer, and or if it's the actress. But now that I saw it, I, I every time I watch the movie now, I'm going to see it. And I was re-watching the scene while writing the article for, for the website. And I just cannot help but see her in the background not reacting to what's going on because she does not realize she's in the frame. It's a minor nitpick, but the reason why it bugs me is because it's. I think that that scene would be pitch perfect had it not been for that slight mistake. So that's it. The rest of the movie is fantastic. <laughs> that's it, I never noticed that. Yeah, yeah. When, when you I, see it, you, you, I'm telling you, it's like I wish I never saw it. I did kind of notice it, and I think my brain did a lot of work to kind of excuse it in relation to everything else that was going on I was like oh well she doesn't really care about that because she's more concerned about this other thing or but yeah it was something where like my brain had to kind of like make up the gap between what was happening and what I understood to be happening this is a minor nitpick minor. oh tiny like it well while, while I was watching it, it didn't bother me it but it was something I noticed yeah I'm gonna tr- now of course I'll I'll obviously see that the next time because I'll be looking for it. So thanks a lot for ruining that for me. <laughs> All right. So um, back to the more positive though, Mariko, who's your MVP of his girl Friday? The dialogue. So the writers. Yeah. Yeah. They, I mean, it's, it's I mean, I, pristine. Although now talking with you guys and hearing from Ricky about how much was done with the actual, like, recording and engineering of it i think i would probably make those people (laughs) my mvp uh to be fair because you know they're the reason that this dialogue stands out and you can actually hear it and understand and everything so i i'm gonna put it to the uh the recording and editing crew or or as my mvps yeah i think that's a really solid choice it's hard to debate that because this movie (laughs) is all about the dialogue (laughs) Yeah, I mean, exactly. <laughs> so it's either the writers or the sound record, the sound engineers. Um, I'm going to go with the writers on this one. I do think that they ultimately, and and you know Ben Hecht as well, who who co-wrote the original play and who who doesn't get credit for the screenplay, but did uh, participate in the the adaptation. But uh, Charles Letter and Ben Hecht, I, I think they they are my MVPs, and anyone else who served to polish things up. So. 
if you know Rosalind Russell did bring in somebody to to polish up her lines great and i'm even going to include the actors who ad-libbed in that anything with the ad-lib but it's the, the the writing in general i think is uh the mvp of this movie yeah no question rick what do you think you got some, you got something different it's it's tough i want to give it to rosalind russell just because i really do think it's hildy's movie but then you know she didn't write the dialogue she didn't she didn't write the screenplay and then you factor in the fact that she hired someone to punch up her dialogue but the thing is, I think it's without a doubt Howard Hawks. And the reason why is because he wrote 50% of the screenplay. He rewrote it. He rewrote 50% of the screenplay. It was his idea to gender swap. So it was his idea to make the ace reporter a lady and not a man. It was his idea to have the overlapping dialogue. It was his idea to conceive this master plan of how they're going to have like 35 microphones and 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 have a switchboard and cue back and forth between the microphones and shut them on and shut them off everything in this movie like yes he had an amazing crew and cast working with him but almost everything in this movie is his idea even like the framing the compositions the lighting i have to have to give it to howard hawks that's fair i mean how do you argue that it's hard to argue against the director a lot of times, although we have had a couple of movies where we could definitely, you know, see that the director maybe was just uh, competent and maybe not the, the, the overall influence. Of course, back then, Howard Hawks, would have, his hand would have weighed heavily over this entire proceeding. So he was uh, uh, he I, was really tough on set. Like he would actually tell like these star actors like Cary Grant or Gary Cooper. He would tell them that was like a shitty performance. He's like, you need to do it over. Like he he would not care. Like, you got to remember, this guy wasn't on contract. He couldn't get fired, really. Like, they needed him. And his movies were all a success, like, financially at the box office, no matter what genre he made. He had so much power on set that he could tell any actor, you're doing a shitty job, redo it. I'm telling you, you got to watch the interviews with him. He's amazing. <laughs> I have seen some. He's a, The old directors are they, – they were definitely – they thought about filmmaking in a completely different way, I think, than directors now do. Uh, and it's funny to listen to them tell their stories. They, <laughs> there was a lot of no nonsense back then. That wasn't always the greatest working conditions for the people on the set. But you know, we're talking about almost uh, almost a hundred years ago. Not quite, I guess, about eighty, but eighty years ago. Yeah, this, this is so, a man who would tell John Wayne that he's not doing a good job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, guys like John Ford would do the same thing too, right? Just gruff, you know, or Sam Peckinpah even later. Um, had no problem <laughs> doing that. So I guess one of the things that we're going to try to introduce now, we had talked about the, doing this before, but I think this seems like the perfect movie to introduce this. Um, so there was the Howard Hawks test. Does this film stand the Howard Hawks test? And the Howard Hawks test basically says that uh, a, a great movie is comprised of a movie that has at least three great scenes and no bad ones. So, I pose this to you. Does His Girl Friday pass the Howard Hawks test? Yes. And yeah. we actually, we, we did this on episode, <laughs> an episode away a while back when we talked about Parasite. But the thing is, it's like, it has to have three great scenes. I think throughout this podcast, we each mentioned at least one scene. But mm -hmm. the key factor here is it does not have a bad scene. No, and that's the tough one. And the closest one for me, the closest bad scene would be the conversation between the messenger, the governor, and the sheriff. That's the closest I would come to a bad scene, but I wouldn't call it bad. It's just disappointing. Yeah, it's just relative. kind of in incongruous, but it's not necessarily bad. Yeah, no. I totally agree. I can't think of a, a single bad scene. I mean, come on. Yeah, and it sets up what is going to happen later on down the line. It is a necessary scene. It sets it up cleverly. I just have a problem with the actor, so it can't be a bad scene. Yeah, I, this has more than three great scenes as far as I'm concerned. Although the scenes run really long, so this this movie does not have your typical number of scenes. Um, some, Like I said, the opening scene, I think it lasts almost 15 minutes, if I, I remember right. I was I was clocking it because it just kept going, and I was I was enjoying it. But uh, I thought, wow, this is just different filmmaking because you don't normally have scenes run this long. Uh, so, yeah, I think this definitely st it, it still stands the test of time. I still laugh out loud at this movie. I think the comedy works great. Um, yeah, I was really, really pleased with how well all of the comedy held up. And I, a lot of it is about the rhythm and timing. I mean, those things are never really changed as far as comedy is concerned. So I, it was 
yeah, it was really gratifying to see that it, it held up so well. And you talk about certain jokes like the, the mashing, right? You have to sort of have some knowledge of the era a little bit. Yeah, there were a, a couple things that I picked up on um, that I, I, I wrote down that were like very era specific. Um, I don't know if you noticed, but in the beginning when they were talking about... Um, the journalists were talking about whether or not the guy was crazy, and they talked about how the alienist had been talking to him earlier. And an alienist was the early term for a forensic psychologist. Oh, interesting. Did not know that. Yeah, there's actually there's actually a TV series called The Alienist um, that's based on this. Uh, um, it was there's a novel as well. Um, but yeah, that was that was the uh, what they used to call um, yeah forensic psychologists or uh, psychologists who, who worked with criminals were known as alienists. I have a question. It's my last yes. question for the podcast. And I guess, Mariko, I want to hear you answer this first. But do you have a problem with the ending, the fact that she walks away with him, with him promising that they're going to get married again? Not really, because I think she knows she knows what she's getting into. I don't have a problem with her deciding to keep her job and stay with him, but I thought it was such an extreme to decide that they're going to get married again, like within like a matter of minutes. Like maybe that's just the time, but that was the only thing I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. There's a little bit of dialogue that makes you think that maybe she never wanted to do any of this ever at all. And that's when she she's she's crying, but she says, I didn't think that you were going to fight for me. And it's at the very, you know, at the very end when she realizes that Bruce is in jail for the third time <laughs> and then he's, and it's, it's almost to me like she's crying tears of joy, not crying. No, it is. Softened or exasperated. Yeah. Right. She's. Yeah. She's it's absolutely. Is. Because like, it doesn't bother me because she's just as much of an asshole as he is. Yeah. Like they're made for each other. It's what she Like, wants. I don't, I don't see her deciding to marry him as, you know, giving anything up or even necessarily strange because the relationship is so strange and impulsive and toxic to start with that getting back together in arguably the most toxic way possible, which is just running into a marriage, totally makes sense for these characters to me. And it seems to be kind of a theme of the movie where these this normal relationship is looked down upon. This one that, that she could have had with Bruce. And, you know, the Earl's relationship with Molly is strange and nobody quite gets it either. Uh, so they want, to turn it, they want to turn it into something else. But it's like the best relationships in this movie are the weird ones. The ones that don't conform to the normal, like, domestic relationship. Uh, I, I think like the end is she knows exactly what, like you said, she knows exactly what she's walking into. Uh, she wants it. She, she wants this. She wanted to go back in a way, this whole thing of her leaving and going off and marrying some other guy could have been her manipulation. Really? I, you, uh, you almost of, of getting Walter to actually do something. I and, can't disagree with that. Yeah. And then she, he finally did and she's happy and they're back. I mean, it is Cary Grant. I would marry Cary Grant. So no, no, no disrespect to Ralph Bellamy, who, by the way, is amazing in this movie. Like the he's way he really portrays good. Bruce. Like, I mean, it's he's like, I mean, a lot of people don't say much about him because Cary Grant outshines him. But he's really good. But, yeah, it's Cary Grant. Like, hello. Yeah, it's, it's and, tough being the straight man in a, in a movie like this. But he does. A good, Ralph Bellamy does a good job. Well, the other thing about her marrying him or deciding to marry him again, like they're going to get divorced in another six months. Yeah. And then they're going to get married again in another eight months. Like, <laughs> right. Those battles will just keep continuing. They will just verbally battle at e uh, each other till the end of time. But that's what they like about each other. Yeah. And I, I, you know, it works. <laughs> and yeah. I, that's why it doesn't bother me that they make this like insane impulsive choice because they're insane impulsive people. <laughs> <laughs> That's what's so great about screwball comedies that didn't need to end on some, you know, moral to the story note. It is just simply you're just watching these people live their bizarre, weirdo lives. Uh, and this is this is one of the best examples of that. Uh, all right. So that was that was it for His Girl Friday. Um, Mariko, where can, where can we find you online? Uh, probably best place to find me is on Instagram. I'm at Mariko MTL uh, for Montreal. And uh, mostly it's knitting and pictures of my cats. 
Nice. So if you're interested in that, Mariko MTL. All right. And uh, you can find me, of course, online at goombastomp.com and on Twitter at Sorted Cinema. Rick, where can we find you? You can uh, find me over at goombastomp.com. Do check out my article on His Girl Friday. Uh, I handle the official Twitter account for Goombastomp, which is Goombastomp, and you can like us on Facebook. You can listen to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Podbean, of course, on the website, and YouTube and iTunes and everywhere. So, um, yeah, if you like the show, tell your friends, give us a rating. All right, that should do it for this week's show. Next week, we'll be back with Color Out of Space. We'll talk to you then. Hello? Hello? Main, 4557. Who? Well, Butch, where are you? Oh, no, Mission Hospital receiving well, home, please. Well, what are you doing there? Haven't you even started? Hello, Eddie. Hildy Johnson. Was there an old lady brought in there from the oh, Lowell Smash? It's Sebastian, Butch. Listen, it's a matter of life and death. Nobody? Oh. I can't hear. Morning, Sebastian. 469. Speak up. A what? Well, you can't stop for a day now. Oh, the community hospital give me the receiving room. I don't see? care if you've been after her for six years, but your whole lives are at stake. Are you going to let a woman come between us after all we've been through? Oh, Max, Hilly Johnson, was there an old lady brought in there in an auto smash-up? Butch, I'd put my arm in fire for you up to here. Now you can't double-cross me. Well, look around, will you please? Well, she does. All right, put her on. I'll talk to her. Oh, good evening, madam. Now, listen, you ten-cent glamour girl. You can't keep Butch away from his duty. What's that? You say that again, I'll come over there and kick you in the teeth. Hey, what kind of language is that? Now, look here, you... She hung up. What did I say? <laughs> Duffy! How do you like that? Mousing Hello, around what? with something. Duffy! Think? You shut up. I'm trying to hear. Duffy! Let's cooperate. Duffy! Well, where is Duffy? <laughs> Diabetes. I ought to know better than to hire anybody with a disease. Well, give me Olympia. 2 one Louis. Yes, bud. Louis, it's up to you. Anything you say, well, bud. Well, beat it out. Get hold of some guys. Who do you want? Anybody with hair on his chest. Get him off the street. Get him anywhere. Offer him anything, only get him. we got to get that desk out of here. Is it important? Is it important? Listen, Louis, you're the best friend i got. I like you too, bud. All right, then don't fail me. Get enough people to move that desk. Now, come on, I'm relying you on you. You know me, boss. The shirt off my back. Okay, don't bump into anything. That dumb immigrant to flop on me as sure as you're born. Try it again at the hospital. It's bound Well, answer. if he's not back in five minutes, we'll carry it out alone. Do anything you want. There's a million ways we can start. A fire. Have the firemen take it out in the confusion. I don't give a darn what you do. Hey, come here. See if we can lift it. Oh, what? Nobody? Oh, never mind. Are you going to help me? No, I'm not. You want me to strain my back? Yes, I'm going to find Mrs. Baldwin. Don't open that door. I'm going down to the morgue and I'm going to find her. Oh, wait, 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 you can't bluff me, Burns. I don't care who you are or what paper you're editor Look, let go of me, will Hang you? Hang on to him, boys. Oh, please. Look, fellas, something's happened to my mother-in-law. We know what you're in here, Helene. They'd be going out to get William. She oh. had the door locked. She and Molly were in here talking. They know where he is. Oh, look, I don't know anything, really, and there's been an accident. Johnson, there's something very, very peculiar going on here. Now, see here, Johnson. Just a moment, Hartwell. If you have any accusations to make, make them in the proper manner. Otherwise, I'll have to ask you to get out. You'll ask me to what? Get out. <laughs>